this uh, segment. Um, I've called it the rise of Christianity, and uh, this is obviously an um, overview. I can't descend to the minutia of church history. I'm kind of giving you like the storyline um, to help you kind of connect dots uh, through the ages. And so, I'm going to give this to the, someone at the back. Can you give these to people who are coming in? I'm just going to go ahead and play this trailer again as we get started. Um, go ahead, Seth, put that on. Discover the rich tapestry of the faith that was once for all revealed to the saints as we journey through the captivating history of the church. Join us for an enlightening seminar that will deepen your understanding of the roots and legacy that has shaped Christianity. Immerse yourself in a thought-provoking seminar as we unearth the hidden gems of the past. Connect with fellow seekers of truth and engage in meaningful conversations that bridge the gap between generations. As I have become familiar with the story of Christianity, I discovered my place in a great cloud of witnesses. Knowing the stories of faithful men and women has deepened my faith. Enrich your faith, deepen your understanding, and forge lasting connections in the Rise of Christianity seminar. Join us in preserving our heritage and shaping our future. Together, let us continue our journey of faith and celebrate the timeless history that has brought us to this moment. See you there. Jonah was the one who put that video together. Um, I did not do that. I didn't want you to come away last week thinking that I spent a whole week of my office time doing that. I did not. Uh, Jonah did this in a couple hours at home, and uh, there's a couple of voice actors that you might recognize in there as well, uh, but very thankful for that. Uh, so as you're coming in, I just wanted to make note that this is uh, an overview study. Today we're actually going to be thinking through what happened after Acts 28. When Acts 28 finishes, it just kind of leaves things open, and we don't really have, in a biblical format, a record of the events that occurred uh, that led us to this point. I thought that this would be a helpful way to introduce this, uh, this, this time um, I want to um, encourage you, if you have a handout there, to use that to follow along. I'm going to be walking through this uh, as a presentation today. And I want to um, bring you to a starting place in the Bible, though. I want you to think through uh, the events that occurred just before the famous Mars Hill speech in Acts chapter 17. There were a couple of events that occurred just prior to that in Thessalonica, and um, it's a Greek-speaking town in which Paul uh, spoke, and there was a great riot that occurred. And uh, do you remember what Paul and his companions were accused of doing in Acts 17 of creating and inciting this riot? Uh, does anyone recall uh, what, what they were accused of? All right. Well, actually, it's, they were accused of turning the world upside down. Um, in Acts uh, 
17, it says, They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, that is Jesus. Now, the Christian claim of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as I alluded in the sermon this morning, is a destabilizing force in this world um, because it, it links the old age of the Old Testament and the prophecies into the present, into history. The, the world is forever changed because Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he rose from the grave. That has forever, you, you have to come to terms with that reality because it was a historical fact. You can't just sweep it under the rug as if this is a mythological explanation for the origins of the world. The, the, it is a historical event that has significant claims. Uh, first uh, claim is that it's exclusive. Christ has called all nations to repent. And so that's an exclusive claim. No one can hide behind the fact that all roads lead to Rome. No, there's only one way. There's one life, and Jesus is that way the truth, and the life.
And so Christians uh, refused to participate in pagan emperor cult worship. Um, and that was, on the one hand, a political statement saying that we value the Roman safety and security that the Roman government provides, but it was... It put them in a very dangerous place. So, for example, in AD 64, there was a fire that broke out in Rome, in, and it rain, ran for nine, nine days. It's kind of interesting that we have fires going on in our country right now, too. But for nine days, the city of Rome, it's estimated that two-thirds of the city burned down. And a lot of people began to rumor that Nero, the emperor, really just wanted to remodel the city. This, that, that Rome had become like a collection point for all kinds of immigrants and, 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 and kinds of low-level economic peoples, and so that, those areas of the city were basically burned and um, an attempt to make room for more grandiose but when Nero began to realize that what was happening, that he was getting negative press, well, then he began to circulate a rumor of his own, as politics goes, that uh, a particular unpopular group of people, the Christians, were responsible for this fire. And that made it very difficult. Um, one, one historian, Roman historian, 50 years after these events wrote this, uh, to kill the rumors, Nero charged and charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices, the group popularly called Christians. The founder of this sect, Christus, had been put to death by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor. And uh, he continues on. This is not in your handout, but first, those who confessed to being Christians were arrested. And on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned although not so much for the fire itself, but for their hatred of mankind. Hatred of mankind. Why would that be something that would be charged against Christians? Because the Romans believed that if we worship and sacrifice to all the local deities, we're providing and making safety for our communities. We're keeping the gods in check. But what happened was is that the, the, the Christians said, no, we will not participate in the societal game of sacrificing to the gods because there is only one true God and his sacrifice has already been completed. And they began to be looked at as people who were against human flourishing in the Roman Empire. And so he continues on. He says, before killing the Christians, Nero had used them to amuse people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine the evening. And Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. So this is the environment that was operating after, after, after um, Paul passed in Acts 28. And uh, Christians were suspected of the rumors, rumors are a great way to slander people. And the rumors that were going on was that, the, that Christians were into incest and that they were also uh, into cannibalism. 
Can you identify anything within Christian worship that might lead someone to make these claims? Does anyone, can, can you kind of picture what, what might be that triggered this? What, what is it? Just communion? Yes, yes. Celebrating of the Lord's table, of eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. That was a, 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 a slander. What about the um, incestuous aspect? That might be a little bit harder. Yes. 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 Calling women, even outside of your own family, sister, and calling brothers in Christ, that whole kind of dynamic of being a, a very occlusive family beyond your bloodline. And so that's a significant uh, accusation, but it's also a commendation of for Christians that they did treat each other like family and also were faithful to celebrating uh, the Lord's table regularly. And so just uh, as we think about um, this, this uh, adversarial relationship between Rome and the Christian church, um, as persecution occurred, there were kind of procedures set in place to try to stamp it out. And uh, one of the territorial governors, you have an emperor, and then you had regional leaders. There was a regional leader named Pliny who, who wrote a letter to the emperor to get guidance on his methodology of oppressing or kind of keeping in check these Christians. And uh, he, he talked about how, he said, for the moment, this is the line that I have taken with all persons who have been brought to me on the charge of being a Christian. I've asked them in person if, one, that they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat a question a second and third time to kind of give them the opportunity to relent, and then I warn them of punishment, and if they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I'm convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. There have been others similarly fanatical who are Roman citizens, and I have entered them on the list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. Um, Emperor Trajan, who, who, who received this letter from Pliny, wrote back to him and said, basically, that's a good approach, but don't go out of your way to try to find Christians, only, only deal with the Christians that are brought to you on accusation. And uh, if they're found guilty, then they've got to be punished. And if they accuse, denied being a Christian, then they need to substantiate with proof. So if a Christian, if a person was accused of being a Christian and they claimed, no, I'm not a Christian, they need to substantiate with proof that they have been participating in the, the cults of sacrifice to other deities. And so there was, uh, as, you, as you can see, what's developing here is that Rome was saying there are certain approved religions, and that's what religio lequita means, there are approved religions, like the Jewish faith was considered to be an approved religion because it didn't necessarily undermine the Roman authority. But then on the other hand, you have those which are of superstitio. These are superstitions which actually are subversive to the public order, and those we will try to stamp out. And Christianity was put in that. And 
it was very common for Christians to be accused of being atheist. And the reason they were accused of being atheist because they denied the plurality of deities. They said that there was only one God. And because they didn't worship any of the multitudes, they were considered to be atheists. So, during the first two centuries of the church, persecution formed itself around these, these uh, angles. There's another threat that I think that we need to be aware of as the church was struggling to get off the ground, and that is there was doctrinal threats um, in the early years, and particularly the threat of Gnosticism. Um, the threat of Gnosticism is kind of unique. We don't, we don't often think in terms of philosoph- philosophy as being something that could potentially wiggle its way into the church. Um, I want to define the word Gnosticism first, uh, just for purposes of what we're talking about, and that's in your, your handout as well. Gnosticism is a generic term used primarily to refer to theosophical theosophical adaptations of Christianity propagated by a dozen or more rival sects which broke with the early church between AD 80 and 150 AD. That's not exactly the best definition if you want to know what Gnosticism means, but it's helpful for a summer way by way of summary. Gnosticism was a very philosophical belief that perfection rests in one. Philosophical perfection. As soon as you have something that's derived from one, you suddenly have something that's imperfect. And it's based upon dualism in which this way of thinking, the physical world is inferior to the spiritual. And um, I like this illustration because I think it speaks easily to the, how they thought. And it's not original with me. Um, but think about sitting in a room. Think about your ideal room where you like to sit and have quiet and peace. And you have your books and you have maybe some music in the background. And in wanders your dog and it vomits right in the middle of the floor. it disturbs your peace. And so what you do is you, you scrape up all that vomit and you toss it out your door. Well, what you just tossed out the door is the physical world. The ideal, the perfect, is the spiritual. And so they had a very negative view of the created world. And they tended to um, uh, create myths about the creation of the world and a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of Christians were actually, funny enough, tempted to say, well, no, I'm just a part of this sect in order to avoid the scruples of Rome in order to alleviate the sense of persecution that they might endure. Um, and because this was a dualistic uh, heresy, there was a lot of suspicion about the Old Testament. And some early Christians, like Marcion, would say that the Old Testament was a different kind of God, whereas now we know the true God is found in Jesus Christ, but the old God is one that we can just set aside. 
and, and this was influenced by uh, Gnostic thinking, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it was as hard as it might be to imagine that this could potentially be a factor, it really was a factor because Greek philosophy was the modern parlance. People thought, spoke in the Greek culture, in, even though they were ruled by Rome, all of the philosophers from ancient Greece were very active in society and in public discourse. And so there were a lot of theories about the origins of the world. And so there were several responses to Gnosticism that developed early on. Irenaeus was a pastor um, who pastored the, the historical church of Smyrna. Uh, remember the church of Smyrna from the book of Revelation, one of the in Turkey? In which John wrote to, and um, he, he lived from 130 to about 200 A.D., and he, he exposed the absurdity of this kind of teaching as being a graft on to Christianity, and he exposed contradictions of these Gnostic leaders from their own writings, and he demonstrated how that there was a unity between the Old and New Testaments. Now, what made things very difficult during this time period is that some of the writers from the Gnostic perspective would send out letters with names of apostles t attached to them. And maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Have you heard of that before? Or the, uh, the, the, the Gospel of Jesus, or even the Gospel of Mary. Um, these are Gnostic Gospels, and they would claim that they had an apostolic origin. Well, Irenaeus uh, developed a way of arguing with him to say, no, you don't have a, a good link back to the original teachings of the apostles. Rather, we as true Christians have this faith that's been handed down through the last 200 years, and we can prove it because, for example, in Rome, we have, we have a chronological way of pointing this back to Peter. And so, during this time period, um, the argument for an apostolic succession uh, became a useful tool at that time to combat these spurious errors in teaching. Now, as persecution is happening, there's this, there's, the church is, is against Rome. We have these false teachers also teaching, there becomes a need for churches to network with one another in order to preserve and maintain a unity of the faith uh, between the churches. And uh, this actually kind of brings us into the third point here, is that there's a need for unity and faith in order. Um, in particular, um, as I had mentioned, the idea of apostolic succession uh, comes into play. And Irenaeus, as I said, could procure a list of all the pastors who had been in Rome and also at the church in Antioch, which we know the church in Antioch was like the second Jerusalem, like in the early days. A lot of the uh, missionary leaders like Paul and Barnabas were headquartered in Antioch. And so these two regions became places of of, like, authority within the early church. Now, the later Roman Catholic Church would distort this 
doctrine or this teaching of apostolic succession in order to claim a superiority of the bishop in Rome. But that was not originally why this was used. It was used as an apologetic to undercut those who were trying to distort the teaching of the church in the early first two centuries. And uh, without going back to the original manuscripts or original intentions, sometimes the church can graft on things that are not necessarily a part of Scripture. And so, I'm just giving you a sense of how this was originally used in the beginning. During this time period, there was also a need to have a collection of, a, of what, what… So, you have these, these different books of the Bible that are being written, or, or supposedly books of the Bible being written, claimed to be. How do we know what is a biblical book and what is not a biblical book? And during this time period, there was attempt to collect the manuscripts and to find a canon of Scripture. Um, and so, I, I, I really think that this is a helpful quote from um, a New Testament scholar in the last generation, F.F. F. Bruce. Um, he said that, uh, and I'll quote there from the wall, it says, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she was already regarded them as divinely inspired. Does anyone know what the word canon means? A collection, or literally the word is rule, like an authoritative measure. And the collection is now come to be known as a collection because this is the standard, basically, by which we evaluate other, other manuscripts that are making the claim. And so, they have to conform and agree with the rule, with the authority, with the list. And so, during this process, uh, the church began to, like in major city centers like Ephesus, uh, Rome, uh, Alexandria, Egypt, there was gathering of manuscripts to say, these are the official uh, and, and, and by about 325, there really wasn't anything uh, new being argued for the collection of manuscripts that we have as our New Testament has been settled. And so, that's how the church… But during this process, there was a need to kind of get a uniformity of what do we all believe. And so, there was a creed developed during that time period, and if you can… It's, it's sometimes called the the Apostles' Creed. Uh, have you heard of the Apostles' Creed? Well, there were three iterations of the Apostles' Creed. The very earliest edition uh, is, uh, comes to us uh, early, and it does not include all some of the famous statements that you might know. Like, for example, this is the original creed, uh, which says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whereas whence He will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and the life everlasting. Does anyone notice anything missing? 
What's that? Uh, descended into hell? Yes, that's right. Um, anything else you see missing? The word Catholic? Yep, that's right. And those get introduced in the 5th century due to um, reasons that we'll get to when we get there. But the very earliest presentation of this creed, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's basically saying these are the things that we can derive absolutely from the teachings of the apostles that are contained in the Scriptures. This is not a replacement for the Scriptures, but this is a distillation of what the t- Scriptures teach us. And so, um, this became a useful way of saying whether or not a church community was being faithful to the doctrine that had been handed down from the first century. And so, that, uh, and so the, the, there became a need for order. They became um, not a, just a unity of faith, but of order. And I, I'm not going to take the time to go over all of these things now, but I just want to mention that during these early years, grounds for what constituted membership and discipline were starting to be developed. Um, church leadership patterns were starting to be developed. A diaconate, uh, the deacons were starting to be developed. I will mention that in the early days, deacons were not on a rotation basis. Once you became a deacon, you were a deacon for life. And uh, the office of deacon was established in the early days as a ministry uh, of mercy to people who were suffering underneath of the persecution of the Roman state. So they didn't really think about buildings, as trustees do. These deacons were actively engaged in making sure that God's people were cared for uh, physically and spiritually, assisting the, the, the elders of the church. Um, I will mention, too, uh, on the membership and discipline side, you might be surprised to, to hear this, that uh, in the early days, uh, the Lord's table was carefully guarded. Uh, you could not participate unless you were a baptized believer. In fact, they dismissed people from the general auditorium, so to speak, or meeting place, and the deacons were vested with guarding the doors, and the only only those who were uh, baptized believers were permitted to participate um, in the Lord's table. Now, we obviously don't do that, uh, but that's just a, 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 an example of the time period. And um, I don't have time to go into the growth of bishops, um, but in a subsequent lesson, we'll kind of cover that as well. I'll talk just briefly here about the expansion and growth of the church. Um, when you finish reading the book of Acts, the gospel has gone... Uh, throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, um, to Turkey, to Greece, and finally in AD 60, it's got to the very heart of Rome. But it doesn't end there. By about 150 AD, there are reports of Christianity in France. There is reports of Christianity spreading eastward towards India and also down south to Ethiopia. And uh, it's, it's remarkable, uh, just the quick movement of Christianity at, during that time period. It's estimated um, that by 312 A.D., 8 to 12 percent of the Roman Empire were Christians. That's a pretty significant movement in 150 years. And that's in the midst of persecution. And so, we want to ask, what was it that helped it? 
to assist the early success of the church. And there are three areas that I just want to briefly mention, and that is, first, they had a witness of charity, a witness of charity. Um, They modeled a very radical willingness to help other people. Um, Tertullian, who was a pastor in the second century or third century, said, you know, in the midst of persecution, he had heard it reported back to him by Roman authorities, see how these Christians love one another as a statement to the effectiveness of a loving community underneath of persecution. There's a second area that, that the, the sanctity of marriage was very unique and distinct. Within Roman culture, men had, I don't want to put it inappropriately, they, the men had all the fun, so to speak, and men did everything that their hearts wanted to do. And there was no protection for women, and women were constantly abused. And so what really, what really put Christianity in the stark contrast with the world was that Christians had an insistence upon the equal value of men and women before God. There was also, they regarded unchastity in a husband as no less a breach of loyalty and trust than unfaithfulness in a wife. It was a double standard in Rome. Men could do whatever they want, but women know you've got to be the faithful woman. And that's how it was. And it was such a revolutionary change that and there's often um, a question of why is it that in the early church so many women were attracted to Christianity? And I believe it was largely due to these principles of uh, priority within the Christian church. The third area is the sanctity of life. Um, yes, insistence on equality between men and women before God, but also care for widows, orphans, and the unborn. Um, no, you're fine. Um, the, the Roman mentality towards the unborn is, was unspeakable. Um, if, if, if the father of the household said, we don't have enough money for this new child that's been born, you could, she, he would say to his, his wife, expose it, which was another way of saying, leave it out on the roadside and let nature take over. And that was the process. And, 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 and sometimes these babies would be picked up and then they would be raised in brothels for future sex slavery. And the Christian way of life was one of compassion for the unborn. Children would be picked up and raised. The early church funded families, funded poor women, so they wouldn't have to go into these. The Church of Rome, um, it was estimated that 1,500 women, widows, and children were on the, on the roll of care financially um, in the first two centuries. And uh, the church was definitely recognized. There was no social safety nets in those days. So sometimes we, we, we recognized that because of Christianity, our governments have stepped in to provide care. Now, we've gone beyond, obviously, original intent. But in caring for the widows and the, and the children, they became 
uh, completely, uh, uh, it was so black and white difference between the cultures. All right, um, the last point that I want to bring up here this morning is that there was a pagan revival and rise of persecution just before the turn of the fourth century. So that would be from 250 through 295 range, there was extreme persecution underneath of Emperor Decius. Decius was ruling at a time when the Roman Empire was starting to fracture, and it was starting to die. It was starting to, you know, you the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, there were several factors that influenced it, but he decided that the reason our empire is faltering right now is because we've left the gods. We have stopped offering the sacrifices in all the towns without in our whole community of, of network of nations. And he established the, the edict that, um, that Christians, or excuse me, he, he sacrificed the first memorial sacrifice to the gods again, and he made the edict that if that everyone in the nation had to sacrifice to the gods. And uh, he was going to return to the old religion, and that would make Rome great again. Sorry, that's literally what he was trying to do. Um, and he offered a sacrifice to institute the Roman golden era, and he mandated that similar sacrifices be carried on throughout the community. Um, archaeologists have actually found uh, certificates that would validate whether or not a person was obeying the edict. Uh, because there would be, like, passports, if you will, that would be checked from time to time to see whether or not you were being compliant to the edict. Um, almost, I don't want to say this like a vaccine passport, but if you can kind of almost see some of the same structures. Um, and archaeologists have recovered examples of one of these certificates in Egypt. Let me just read the translation of it. Uh, the certificate is presented to the Commission for Sacrifices in the Village of Alexander Island by Aurelius Diogenes, son of Satabus of the village of Alexander Island, who is about 72 years of age with a scar on his right eyebrow. I ha and this is his declaration. I have at other times always offered to the gods, as well as now in your presence, and according to the rules, have offered, sacrificed, and eaten of the sacrificial meal. And I pray, that you, I pray you to attest this. Farewell, I, Aurelius Diogenes, have presented this. That was his, like his passport certificate saying that I have been compliant with worshiping other, like the, the gods. And because he could present that, his life would be spared. Uh, and death was legislated as the, uh, for failing to obtain and have one of these certificates. So the question is, how should Christians respond? Um, the church had really largely been caught unaware, and previously the church had to had it relatively easy because there was lack of enforcement. You can see the policy of like, you know, don't go out and seek out these Christians. 
but if they're presented to you, so it's a very soft approach. This is a very hard approach. Now you have to demonstrate without a shadow of doubt that you have sacrificed to the gods. And unfortunately, it is sad to admit this, but many Christians capitulated during that time period. There were many Christians and even pastors who said to their congregations, it's okay to do this because we know there's no such thing as a God. We can act it out and be different inside of our hearts. Um, you know, and still others were willing to take bribes. I will write you a certificate if you might give me the money. And some local leaders would allow that to take place. So on bribery basis. Now, it is, as I said, remarkable how many apostatized at that point, and it really presents itself as a challenge in every generation for us to ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to non-comply because of our greater faith and love for Christ? And it presented a real challenge. How should they demonstrate who, their genuineness? Now, despite the persecutions from without and persecutions from within, Christianity emerged as an unstoppable uh, force in the Roman Empire. I'm going to back up in time just a little bit to 150 AD in which Polycarp was a pastor who was a disciple of the elder apostle John. So within a generation of the first apostles. As he said, he's a he was the pastor at the church in Smyrna, and it's an, in 150 A.D., a mob erupted in the city, and there were people making claims that we need to get rid of the atheists, that's referring to the Christians, and someone saw Polycarp on the edge of the mob and said, get Polycarp. And the soldiers found Polycarp praying in his house uh, after he had left the event. And uh, the guards of the soldiers said to him, save yourself, deny Christ, and say that Caesar is Lord. And they said to him, consider your age. What harm is there saying Caesar is Lord just once? But Polycarp refused and was led to the arena to be thrown into the lions. Uh, the governor gave Polycarp three chances to save his life. First, he told him, say out loud for me in my presence, away with the atheists, that is meaning down with the Christians. And Polycarp pointed to the heathens in the galleries who were watching this whole courtroom drama and said, away with the atheists. And the governor, and the governor gave him a second chance and said, curse Christ. And Polycarp answered, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. And can I revile my king that saved me? A third time the governor said, swear by Caesar. And Polycarp answered, I am a Christian. If you want to know what that means, set a day and I will explain it to you. I'll throw you to the beasts, the governor threatened. Bring on your beasts, Polycarp said. If you scorn the beasts, I'll have you burned. 
You try to frighten me with a fire that burns for an hour, and you forget the fire of hell that never goes out. And so Polycarp didn't make it to the arena for the lions. Instead, he was burned at the stake. And his dying prayer was, Lord God Almighty, Father of Jesus Christ, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this hour that I may take my place among the martyrs in the cup of Christ to rise again with the Holy Spirit. May I be an acceptable sacrifice. So as we, we walk through the centuries of the church, this is the theme of the true church. And so when you find yourself faltering, wondering, there are those cloud of witnesses all around you who have stood for their faith, and God can give you the grace to do the same. All right, let's close. Father, thank you for time thinking through the early history of the church.